Are you a person that studies the Bible seriously? Are you a person that studies the Bible seriously? What causes a person to be like that? I want to share what happened when I talked to my friend Marcus about how he went from being a casual hearer of the word to being an avid student of the Bible. I want to share with you what happened in his life, what changed his heart and mentality. Marcus came to faith at age six. And when I was talking to him, he said this. This is a direct quote from Marcus. He said, yeah, there was a change. I was six. And I know I was more motivated towards the Bible even from then on. But I wanted to just get stories out of it. And essentially, I liked to hear preaching, somebody else expositing it, though I didn't have that vocabulary. But what I wanted was not really having to think about it myself, but somebody else to think about it hard for me. That was Marcus, a direct quote from him. He went on to tell me this. He said, quote, really, I started thinking seriously about the Bible in high school. And I asked him, Marcus, what, what changed? And he said, well, my friend Brady. Brady, he, he helped teach me that God wants us to think on it, meaning the word, to meditate on it, to consider deeply what is in there, and that we do this on our own volition, something that we are willing and happy to do. And I was like, Marcus, that's great. What, what did you do? What was your study habits like? Did you have a notebook? Uh, he went on to tell me about how he had a study Bible. He had an ESV study Bible. Um, he said, I loved it. I really started digging my teeth into it. Uh, I knew some of the bigger stuff before, but getting to dig into the meat of things, that was his words, with all those notes at the bottom, that was really cool. He loved the references. Um, here we go again. These are living illustrations of what will happen to you if you take the word to heart. You will be unstoppable. You'll be able to knock things over by the power of the Spirit in your life. Let's keep focused here. So Marcus loved his study Bible. His friend Brady actually recommended that he get commentaries. So he got a few commentaries. But Marcus went from wanting others to think about the Bible to this. Here's, here's where his heart is right now today. I was just talking to Marcus on Friday. Here's what he said. If you're wondering, does is, is he still value the scriptures? A direct quote from Marcus. He said, you know, when you get an understanding of how dense and rich the word is. Oh, I, I see how people spend their life studying it. I see how there's more than a lifetime than we can figure out. And that's how he ended his conversation with me. I was so encouraged talking to Marcus. Um, his view of the scriptures changed just from having someone else teach him about the importance of seriously taking the Bible. And it doesn't mean you have to have a study Bible and commentaries to do that, but they're helpful tools and they helped him. What's cool about Marcus is Marcus is not just my friend. He's many of your friends. His name is Jaron Marcus Tankersley. Uh, and Jaron, this is not to lift you up on a pedestal. Uh, you knew I was going to say that. Um, but it is to say that same mentality Jaron has, a member of our church, many of you have. And I pray today that the scriptures that we read will encourage you to have a deeper affection for the word. Because today, 
We don't have a chance to just sit back and hear what Jaron thinks about the word, as good as it is, or even me or one of the pastors. We have a chance today, think about this, to hear what Jesus Christ himself thinks about the Bible. Yes, the Bible is about Jesus, but what would Jesus say about the Bible? What kind of perspective does he take on the scriptures? There's a great certainty that he can give us, and that's what we get to read today in Matthew chapter 5. So I want to invite you, turn to Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount is where we are. It spans three chapters in Matthew. It's a long sermon, but it's glorious. And it's it's, if you wanted to summarize the Sermon on the Mount, it's a kingdom manifesto. Jesus is laying out the foundational teaching of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's all about God's kingdom, how his kingdom operates. His kingdom is where holiness is operative. Yes, he's the sovereign king of the world, every atom, every molecule. But when Jesus speaks of the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about God's redemptive reign and rule where holiness is happening. So it's all about the kingdom. And here today, we get this beautiful intersection between how does the word of God, Jesus himself, and the kingdom, how do these things all intersect? What's their relationship? Let's see that. Verse 17, Matthew 5. Jesus says this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The main point of this passage, it's already compact. It's a compact passage, tightly pressed. But if we wanted to try to distill it down into kind of a, a simple, memorable What's Jesus' main point here? Here's what I think it would be. The main point is, to the extent that a person obediently embraces the scriptures, you can see that person's relationship to the kingdom of heaven. Say that again. To the extent that a person obediently embraces the scriptures, that's telling of or displays their relationship to the kingdom of heaven. If you wanted to put this into street language, you could just say, how somebody treats the Bible tells you a lot about their relationship with the kingdom of God. These four verses here that Jesus is speaking were spoken on a hillside 2,000 years ago. But they have great power today. 
and everything Jesus says has great power because it's all about God's word. God's word is still powerful today. Those four verses right there continue to talk about the word in each verse. That structure is going to form the four different categories of thought for us today. There's four different areas to put our minds because there's four different verses. This is somewhat of the structure. This is also the, the points of this, this sermon. Here they are. Verse 17, we have the incarnate word. The incarnate word. And by word, I just mean scriptures. Verse 17, the incarnate word. Verse 18, the written word. The written word. Verse 19, discipleship in the word. And verse 20, warnings or cautions near the word. And the word word or scriptures is not found in verse 20, but when Jesus mentions the scribes and Pharisees, they're kind of symbolic of an interpretation of the scriptures. So we know that, that the theme is still related there. So we have the incarnate word, the written word, discipleship in the word, and then warnings or cautions about the word. Everything Jesus is saying here is about the scriptures. And I pray that you will think the same way Jesus thinks about the scriptures today. Verse 17, if you put your eyes back on this passage. Verse 17 is a verse that clears up misconceptions. Verse 18, see how it starts there with that word for? That's typically a clue in the scriptures that it means the word because or, or the ground, the, the thing that supports what's just been said. So verse 17 clears up misconceptions. Verse 18, because it starts with that word for, we can see that it's an anchor. It's grounding the claim that Jesus just made in verse 17. Then in verse 19, we get that word therefore, which is pivoting off of what was just said in verse 18, and it pivots directly to us especially to the hearers of that moment, to us now in a personal way, summoning us. And then in verse 20, we see the word for again, because it provides a, a foundational clarification, a foundational insight and truth that verse 19 is also affected by. Um, so it's a, it's a very dense, rich passage. You've got two fours, one therefore, each sentence, each verse could be its own sermon and volumes of books written on just each verse. We're going to try our best today to keep these compact, all four of these, and work through these points briefly. And I want to apologize in advance if there's any one section of these four that we work through that you feel like, ah, we could have covered so much more. That's true. We could have. So take your questions and longings and hopes about any section that's too short, and forgive me, but hold on to them and come seek us out as pastors, come seek us out as church members, and talk together about them. Let's begin with that first section, the incarnate word. We see that in verse 17. What is it that Jesus is calling us to believe? Well, he's calling us to believe that he has not come to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the scriptures. It says law and prophets, but that's what the law and prophets mean. We'll explain that. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why is Jesus saying, don't think this, think that? Why didn't he just say, think this? Why does he have to say, don't think that? It's because Jesus, up until this point of his ministry, was somebody who people looked at, I can't figure this guy out. I mean, think about Jesus' ministry. Do you remember what he was doing? Every Sabbath, he wasn't merely gathering in a synagogue worshiping. He was healing people. And people who had religious rules and traditions said, you can't heal people on a Sabbath. So there was already grumbling about Jesus, that he was a healer and he's healing on the Sabbath. People were misunderstanding him. But if we take it a step further, we can think for a moment, how did Jesus become a well-known teacher? Was it because he went through a certain rabbinical school? Was there a rabbi that he sat under? Did he go to a scribe training academy? He did not. In fact, if you go back a page, a chapter in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, And he sees two brothers, they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. So it seems like Jesus is this rogue, religious fanatic who breaks traditions and heals on the Sabbath day and didn't have formal training, but he's claiming to be a teacher. He's claiming to compel others to leave their jobs and follow him. He's doing everything in this unconventional way. It's making a lot of people uncomfortable. And even at the beginning of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he's been talking about the Beatitudes, being salt and light in the world, these rich images. He's not talking about the law. In fact, if you were to look at Jesus' life, you may be tempted to charge him with the idea Jesus doesn't care about the law. He's bringing something new. The law doesn't matter. You know what? He's actually come to abolish the law. Come on, let's go hear him. All these disciples are coming to hear him on this mountainside for this Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus wants to be crystal clear what his relationship to the law is. And he said it right there in verse 17. He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. And if anybody thought he came to abolish it, They'd be in for a treat because the next several paragraphs that he says in this sermon is all about the law. But he didn't come to abolish it. Abolish it just means to destroy or dissolve or overthrow something. Jesus says, I didn't come to overthrow and destroy the law and prove that it's untrue and it's, it's worthless. And he's saying here, not just the Pentateuch, those first five books, the law, but also the prophets. So major prophets, the long ones, the minor prophets. In the Gospels, the book of Psalms is referred to as prophetic. Jesus is really talking about all of the Old Testament canon here. And he's saying, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Do you know what that word fulfill, fulfill the law means? It means to fill full. To fill full. That's what fulfill means. To fulfill is to bring something to pass, to make it complete. Jesus is telling us 
the conscious identity he has about the word. Jesus is not fulfilling scripture by accident. Whoa, I didn't realize that. I guess I fulfilled that. I, I guess I fulfilled that. He's telling us why he came to earth. Do you see that in verse 17? If he says, I haven't come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill, then you can see Jesus' mentality for why he came to fulfill the scriptures. We know from passages like John 1.14 that it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know from passages like John 5.39 that Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think in them they have eternal life. They bear witness about me. Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, parentheses, Sermon on the Mount, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus says this before he goes to the cross, and Jesus says this after the cross and resurrection. Both ends of his public ministry in life, he's saying, I came to fulfill the scriptures. So here's the question for us today. Do you believe that? And do you see that? Or do you simply trust, yeah, Jesus, you fulfilled it, but I don't really understand how. I couldn't really give examples, but I'll, I'll just take your word for it. Brothers and sisters, do you see how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures? When you cycle through things in your mind, your knowledge of the Bible, do you see the ways he's fulfilled the scriptures? I want to give you a few of them before we go on to our next section of the written word. Because Jesus is the incarnate word, the word in the flesh, it makes sense that he fulfills the scriptures, the law and the prophets, because he is God. The scriptures are God's word. So there's no category of life or thought that they're going to cover that would be more expansive than God himself, Jesus Christ. They, they fit together. He fulfills it. If you're like me, when, when I was growing up, I thought fulfilling scripture meant there's a prediction made and he fills the prediction. Like a one-to-one -one correlation. Like if I predicted right now Andy Nixon is going to have such and such thing to eat for lunch today. And he went home and he had that for lunch. That would be this incredible predictive word that I speak that he fulfills. But Jesus doesn't only fulfill predictive words. Jesus fulfills types and patterns and symbols and images. Everything that the law witnesses to, righteousness, he fulfills all of that. Before we, we go to the next section, let me show you these. It's actually right in Matthew, so we don't have to scan our whole Bibles to see this. Matthew has already been trying to get his listeners to see this. So look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All this took place to fulfill. And he mentions the virgin birth. That's from Isaiah 7. So that's one of those direct predictions. 
one of those direct prophetic type things from the Old Testament that, yes, that's, that's fulfillment. We all recognize that. But, but Matthew wants us to see more. Look in chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. It says, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's quoting Hosea 11.1, which was not this forward direct prediction. It was quoted in Hosea as a looking back at a pattern that God had done with his people, taking them out of Egypt. And he says Jesus fulfills that. Interesting. Matthew Chapter 2, verse 23, a little bit further. Look at Matthew 2, 23. It says, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, but not in just this elementary way where it's so easy to see. It takes study and effort to see. How is he fulfilling the scriptures where it says he'll be called a Nazarene? If you go back to the Old Testament, you can't find a verse that says, he'll be called a Nazarene. This puzzles commentators, Bible scholars. What's, what's happening there? We can talk more about this later if you'd like. But in short, we could say this. Isaiah 11.2 mentions the word branch, that Jesus will be this branch, this offshoot out of the stump of Jesse. And the word branch is so similar in how it sounds to the word for Nazarite, Nazarene. Here's the point of this, though. It's not just, ooh, that's kind of interesting. The point is to say, Jesus fulfills the clear, predictive prophecies. Jesus fulfills past redemptive history patterns. Jesus is also the fulfillment, as we see here, of things that are more illusions. Not an illusion, like it's not real, but an allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. An illusion, a literary idea where there's wordplay. Jesus fulfills even those elements of the scriptures. Jesus says later here in Matthew 3.15, at his baptism, the first recorded words we have him speaking in this gospel. Jesus says, let it be so now. Let me be baptized by you, John. Let it be so now, for thus it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Every chapter of Matthew leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew has shown how Jesus has fulfilled scriptures, even in Matthew 4.14. Matthew 4.14, it says, So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Light has dawned on the peoples. This is from Isaiah 9.1. That was a promise that he fulfilled. So if we take a step back and we collect this body of facts for a moment, and you think, what do I do with this? Here's how you should think. Whether it's a promise in the Old Testament, whether it's a prophetic prediction, whether it's a, a type, a symbol, a type, I just mean some, some event that has escalation, historical fulfillment later, we don't have time to go into all the ways that Jesus is the new Adam, 
Jesus is the new temple. So whether it's a people, a place, something historical that God's doing with his people, Jesus fulfills all of the scripture, and it's bursting at the seams when it says that he fulfills scripture. If you're the type of person that just looks for the exact word for word, give me the prediction about Jesus, and he fulfills it, then you're going to find a lot of those. But there's going to be a lot of things that you don't see because they're illusions, they're themes and types. So I just want to encourage you, when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, that is a phrase bursting with meaning that teaches us to see all of the scriptures being filled full by his life. This has application for our lives today. The simple application that it gives us is wake up, be awakened. When you're reading the scriptures, you're reading about Jesus even when you're outside the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Wherever you go, you're reading about Jesus. So if you're reading the book of Leviticus and you're getting bogged down, why are there all these sacrificial things happening? That's helping prepare your mind for for how sacrifice is related to God's plans. It's preparing your minds to see Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Jesus as the one who sheds his blood and makes atonement. The themes of substitution, that someone else can take punishment for sin and die in my place. That's a theme, idea, first unveiled in the Old Testament. That's why when people would bring a sacrifice, they would lay their hand on the head of that that goat or that lamb or that bull, and they would confess their sins. And while their hand is laying on that animal, showing that they've identified with this sacrifice, the bull would be slaughtered right there. Why would God tell his people to do that in the Old Testament? What's the point of that? The point of that is that's a shadow to the fixed reality of who Jesus is as a fulfillment of Scripture. It's all pointing to him. He is the fulfillment of everything we see in the Scriptures. Let that awaken you to be a student of the Bible. The application for us when we, when we hear that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture is not just to say, okay, great. The application for us is, Now go see all the ways he fulfills scripture. Be a student of the word. That is motivating. That is awe-inspiring. There's always more to see than what you currently see about Jesus being the one who fills full the scriptures. But Jesus helps his listeners realize there's something they can put their eyes on to help them see that he's the fulfillment of scriptures. That's the written word. That's our second category here, the written word. Could Jesus' fulfillment of the word be optional? Is it just kind of a hobby, a fun interest Jesus has? He's a carpenter, but whenever he has time, he tries to go fulfill some scripture, and then he gets back to his, his daily carpentry and If he's got a free weekend, hey, I'm going to go fulfill some scripture this weekend. You all want to come do that with me? 
No, according to this next verse, here's why Jesus came to fulfill Scripture. We see there in verse 18, for, that's how it starts, meaning here's the reason why. Verse 18, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The reason Jesus fulfilled the scriptures is because the scriptures must be fulfilled. This fits hand in glove with what Samuel was preaching on several weeks ago about the truthfulness of God's word. That the scriptures must come to pass. If Jesus doesn't fulfill them, they won't be fulfilled in their entirety. He says there, until heaven and earth pass away, which may sound a little strange. We know that there's a new heavens and a new earth that are coming. Jesus is saying here, the scriptures are true for all ages of time. It's not like because we live in a a modern period, to our perspective, that the scriptures were really true for people in the first and second century, but not so much for us now. The scriptures are true in all ages. And they're true in a written way. Where are we getting that? Well, we're getting that because that that phrase that may seem strange, iota or a dot. Have you ever noticed that? The word iota? That's not really an English word that we use. That's a Greek word. That's actually a letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the eighth letter of the Greek alphabet. The smallest letter. And when Jesus refers to not an iota, so not a letter, not a dot. He's talking about just the slightest little pin stroke. You know the difference. If you're writing a letter to a friend, let's say you're writing in cursive, and you don't dot your I's or cross your T's, a T might look like a letter L unless you put the right dot or the cross across it. Jesus is saying, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's saying the law, the written word, will remain, every part of it, down to the smallest specks and bits of it, down to the smallest words, because you know, if you change a letter, you change a word. Jesus is saying it's all true. It will all come to pass. There's no wasted letters in the Bible. And you might say, Pastor, that, that's a pretty big leap to go from the written word there to mean the Old Testament, Jesus' time, the New Testament. He's just kind of talking about some of the Old Testament books, right? No, he's talking about all of the scriptures. We know that because of what he says here. All will be accomplished, and not just in the Old Testament. It's until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus knows that there will be scripture written after his death and resurrection, namely his authoritative witnesses who would write the New Testament. So Jesus is affirming the written word in the Old Testament. He's making this authoritative claim about himself and even his apostles who wrote down teaching, doctrine, testimony. Jesus is saying here, Not even the least stroke of the pen will be wasted and not be fulfilled. Everything in the written word will be fulfilled. This helps us have certainty about the written word. 
Jesus is affirming a fixed reality of the written word. Here's what Jesus didn't say here. If we look at this verse, Jesus didn't say, some things will happen, but some things won't because human authors wrote down words. Jesus says, all will be accomplished. And he says, all will be accomplished connected to the idea that what's accomplished is what is written. So bring it full circle. The scriptures, even though they are written by man, you can take Jesus' perspective that the scriptures have this supernatural accomplishment to them. They will happen because they're divinely written, divinely inspired. If you ever hear somebody say, I don't think we can trust that, that, uh, you know, that book of Romans, is that, is that really true? Here's all you have to say to somebody who says that. Where did you get that idea? You, tell me, where did you get the idea that we don't need to trust the book of Romans? I know that my authority for trusting the written word of God comes from right here of what Jesus says about the written word. Jesus tells us that God's word can be written down. So if somebody believes that it can't be, they have to reconcile with what Jesus said. This works wonders for our certainty that the scriptures are written. This has all kinds of application for our life. For one, it should cause you to want to not see the Bible as this disconnected string of pieces of truth out there, but as a cohesive whole. Maybe you're the type of person that doesn't like literary stuff. You know, in school you hated the grammar things. You hated the English teacher who was a stickler for something. But those details contribute to the meaning. We live in a day and age where the, the reader, when they come to a text, I get to determine the meaning of this. But that's not how language works. Things are written down because they're trying to communicate something to you. The author determines the meaning. If we determine the meaning of Scripture, then what Jesus said there, all will be accomplished, would fall and falter. But if what Jesus says there, all will be accomplished, the written word, every iota, every dot, if Jesus means there that it's divinely written, then we can trust it will be accomplished. Some application for us. First, one application to our pastor, Samuel. I don't mind you all listening in to an application for him. Samuel, God is very pleased with your doctoral work. An application for us here is that Samuel's doctoral work that hinged so often on language and grammar is commensurate with what Jesus says here. Jesus affirms the literary value of the scriptures, that authors, that arguments, that premises hinge upon sentences and paragraphs and even letters and words. So the application for you is praise God, keep that spirit going, and trust that God's going to use your honoring of even the smallest of words and themes. What about us? Here's an application for you, and I don't want this to feel harsh. I want to be really careful. But I hope that it's it may make you think a little different. And here it is. You ready? If your primary involvement with the scripture is a 
a bathroom devotional. You know what I'm talking about? The kinds that just, it's a random verse and here's a few thoughts. That's not bad. That's not ungodly. But if that's your steady diet of Scripture, your main contact with it, you may lose all kinds of rich meaning that the Scriptures have because you're taking away some of the literary quality of the Scripture and it's being cut out and here's a verse and it's who knows whether it's in context or not. Here's what I mean by that. This is from D.A. Carson. So this is not me saying this. Here's a trusted Bible scholar. He's a faithful guy. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, do you see the Bible as just a book of precious thoughts? We are sometimes in danger of treating God's word as if it was a collection of loose, unclassified gems. The Bible then becomes a mere source book of precious thoughts. When it's handled in this way, some of the important things are lost to view, like historical development, progressive theology, this progressive unfolding revelation of God and his character and how it builds and crescendos the literary structure which binds together a book or discourse into coherent themes and sub-themes. All that kind of stuff will be lost to you. You will be blind to it if the resources that you feed on and the way you handle Scripture is kind of like the fortune cookie stuff. Let me just pop open one verse, take it. That's kind of a cool thought, and you go on your way. Jesus wants us to put value on every iota, every dot. So yes, he wants us to value the individual verses. But since no words and verses are wasted and it's written in a literary way, then it's all fitting together. So I want to encourage you, be a student of the scriptures. If you're the person who loves the details, spend some time trying to study bigger themes, bigger things going on in books, whole movements. If I were to ask you right now, what's the whole book of Joshua doing to the Old Testament? How does that whole book contribute to the flow of the Old Testament? be a great thing to study or if I took it to the detail level how does the day of atonement one day mentioned in the book of Leviticus how does that contribute to the Old Testament so whether it's big themes or or small details be a student of the Bible who's looking for all different kinds of things that are written because they will all be accomplished I hope your Bible study is going well I'm not advocating that if you don't have a study Bible, you're just a second-rate Christian. I'm not saying that. Think for a moment, what did the original hearers of this have to do to start applying what Jesus just said to them? They couldn't go out and buy a study Bible. They didn't go out and buy a commentary. There was no personal copy of the Scriptures that they could roll up in a scroll and tuck in their back pocket while they're working. The original hearers of this would have been stirred up with a desire to come to the synagogue and listen intently. They would have been stirred up for a desire like Deuteronomy 6 tells us to talk about the law and the prophets when they sit, they rise, when they're with their families and children, when they're at work, to meditate on it. The big, rich themes of Scripture and the the tiniest details, yes, study Bibles can help, and if you don't have one, get one. We can recommend some, ask us as pastors or Ask church members what they have. But you don't have to have that to be a student of the scriptures. But I'm encouraging you, be a student of the scriptures. How's that going? How is your rigorous 
devoted study of the scriptures. Some of you are just like me. You might hop online, you might go to Amazon, and you might spend a lot of time reading reviews before you buy something. And you'll put all kinds of time and energy and devotion into researching something. And yet when it comes to the scriptures, you might be tempted to not spend time and energy and look at resources and look at what people have said about it. I know because I live in the same world you live in. The things that we study and research and seek after are the things that we give our attention to and we're careful about. I'm asking you, is the scriptures that for you? Do you give careful time, attention, and study to the word? If you don't, what more are you waiting for Jesus to say? The written word is inspired. Well, let's briefly touch on these last two. Jesus goes from talking about himself being the incarnate word who fulfills the word to the importance of the written word, and now he makes it even more personal by talking about our discipleship in the word and some warnings. First, the discipleship here. He says there in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that word relax? Well, Jesus means to loosen, to loose, to untie, to unbind, to release, kind of set aside. Think of the, the picture of kids playing around the pool, like a big, a big pool, a pool that's got stamped on the side of the pool, no running, that there's lifeguards, sunscreen, all kinds of things. Think about what happens when the lifeguard I'm not going to worry about that sign that says no running. The only sign I'm going to worry about is the one that says no diving. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a picture of someone relaxing a command. Uh, I'll keep this one. I'm going to untie that command from my attention today. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, Jesus is telling his hearers, because I am the fulfillment of the law, that doesn't mean your life then has no implication for the law. I'm fulfilling the law because it will all be accomplished. You must live out obediently the scriptures because they will be accomplished. So you can't pick and choose what you're going to obey. You can't relax and untie some of the commands on your life. Jesus is rebuking anyone who would see the scriptures as just a seasonal thing in their life or just a pick and choose if we're honest, I think one of the easiest ways we can relax the scriptures as Christians would be this. We can tend to think honoring our father and mother is just while we live in their house, while we're children or teenagers. Jesus is saying we can't relax commandments and we can't teach others to do the same. command like that, honor your father and mother, that's, that's a lifelong command. Jesus is saying here that when we think about his commandments, we must see the big picture, the big principles, and also the details. We can't ever get comfortable and complacent that we know enough of his commands. We can't ever use the excuse, Jesus, you've given too many commands. 
He says in 1 John 5, this is love, that you obey my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. It's kind of like the spirit of Ezra 7.10. In the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra, who is a, a scribe, if you will, a teacher of the law, he says, the good hand of God was upon him the author of Ezra, the good hand of God was upon him for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Are you obeying verse 19 with great joy or begrudgingly? If we were to examine your life, are you treating the Bible kind of like that, that owner's manual, vehicle owner's manual in your glove box? Yeah, it's there if I have an emergency or if I'm curious about something. But I'm not going to memorize it. I'm not going to meditate on that. I'm going to think I know the basics. That's kind of all I need. Jesus wants us to have all the scriptures in our grasp. Because he wants us to do it, to live it out, and to teach it. All the scriptures. Did you notice there that Jesus bifurcates how the word is supposed to affect us. It goes two directions. There's that doing element. We're supposed to live out the word and we're supposed to teach it. Why is he telling us to do all this? Is he just giving us a list of things to do? No, he said there, those who relax commands will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Those who do and teach will be called great. So if you want to pursue greatness in God's kingdom, then pursue doing and teaching the scriptures. And the most natural context for teaching here that they would have listened to would be in the relationships they have with children or those they work with. Teaching is something that we're all called to do. This is a wonderful section right here, verse 19. I think it does press in our lives a little bit, especially those of you who are Sunday school teachers or pastors. You know, we can be tempted that because we're in the word teaching it, uh, do I really need to study it if I'm not about to teach something? Jesus is encouraging us all the law, the littlest specs, the biggest commands, the small commands, the weighty matters, the, the matters that don't seem as weighty, all of it, do and teach it. This is kingdom greatness, according to Jesus. That main idea that we talked about at the beginning, how somebody treats the word as telling of their relationship to God's kingdom. Put your eyes on somebody's life. Talk to them in conversation. Find out, are they a student of the scriptures? Are they claiming to be someone great in God's kingdom, but in reality, they're not giving their time to, to studying the scriptures, to teaching it to others and the relationships they have. Don't be fooled when, when somebody wants you to think they're great in God's kingdom. Jesus gives us the measuring stick here of kingdom greatness. And it involves doing the word and teaching it. So I want to say thank you to all the parents who are doing a wonderful job teaching their children. I hear about the ways you teach your children the word. You're obeying Jesus' command here to teach the word. Those of you who are unmarried, I hear the ways that you're trying to teach the things the Lord's teaching you to your friends and to your family. 
you're obeying the scriptures. Keep doing that. That's kingdom greatness. This fits with the Great Commission, doesn't it? Jesus says that we're to make disciples, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. That takes a lifetime. That's kingdom greatness. And then Jesus closes with not merely a call to their discipleship, but he closes with this idea of a warning. He warns them. It's almost as if Jesus is wanting them to realize, hey, if you get so focused on are you doing enough, you may start to think that it's your own works, your own righteousness. You may start to compare yourself with others. I'm greater than them in the kingdom. Ooh, they're lesser than that person. Jesus puts a stark contrast in verse 20, a warning, if you will. Look at verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a wake-up call. When he says your righteousness must exceed, that's just the idea of overflowing, abounding. Your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees. So those people that taught the law and claimed to live it out so great in front of others, Jesus exposes that and he says, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness is far beyond that. Can you hear how shocking that would have been? What Jesus just said there means just because you're born Jewish, you're not going to the kingdom of heaven. Just because you're a scribe and Pharisee, that doesn't automatically mean you're going to heaven. Jesus is in some sense redefining the standard for what entrance into heaven is. He's not redefining it, meaning he's saying something new from the Old Testament, but it's something new to those who began to believe we have Abraham as our father, we're born in the right family. Jesus says, no, your righteousness has to exceed even the greatest examples of godliness around you. How could that be? That's kind of a puzzle and a riddle. Well, this verse is screaming out loud for righteousness by faith. In the Old Testament, we know from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. We know from Genesis 15.6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we know that this is a fact that's not going to change. As Ecclesiastes says in verse uh, chapter 12, that all the words, all the wise sayings are like nails firmly fixed. They're not going anywhere. As Jesus says in John 10.35, the scriptures cannot be broken. Everything Jesus has said in this section of the Sermon on the Mount falls and crashes upon this last statement. Yes, I want you to live out the word, but your righteousness must far exceed scribes, Pharisees. It far exceeds what you can even do. That riddle right there, the key was already given to that lock in verse 17. This is why Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. He is our righteousness. As Romans 3 says, the law and the prophets bear witness to a type of righteousness. And he fulfills that. It'd be fitting for us to, to close on the gospel. Because that's where Jesus closes on this last verse. The gospel teaches us and tells us that you, in and of yourself,
cannot save yourself. If you started to try to do right and good things right now in this moment, you could never do enough right and good things to scrub away the wrong and the sins that you've committed against God. You've rebelled against him. All of us have. The scriptures teach that God loved us and created us to know and love him, but we rebelled. And because he's good, he will pour out wrath on sin. That's bad news for us. That means we will be destroyed. But he also promises in his word, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith always has an object. And the scriptures proclaim that Jesus Christ is that object of faith. He is the fulfillment of scriptures. But that's not good news unless you know what Jesus did. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. And then he rose again, proving that it was an acceptable sacrifice. And he ascended to be with the Father, and he promises to come again. And he sends his followers to go out in the world and proclaim that message. If you've never trusted in that message of what Jesus came to do, that he is the fulfillment of the good news of the Bible, do that today. Repent of your sins. Turn away from looking for life fulfillment in something other than Jesus. And if you turn and trust in Christ, his righteousness will be yours. You'll be united to him by faith. And what Jesus said there, that if you have a righteousness that exceeds these scribes and Pharisees, that's the way you're entering the kingdom of heaven then you can know you're going to enter heaven and be with Christ because you know the righteousness you have is not your own. It's one that's from Christ. I pray that you would see how the gospel is our righteousness. But I pray that you would see how the gospel doesn't leave us to be content that Christ is our righteousness so we don't really need to study the scriptures. We can do our own thing. We can let pastors and church leaders and Sunday school teachers, they can think for me. Follow Jesus' certainty of the scriptures today and take the Bible seriously. Is there anything else you're waiting for Jesus to say? What more can he say than, than what he said right here? Let's pray.